Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Mount Dora's Lakeside Inn celebrates its 130-year anniversary. This hotel had been operating for, solidly operating for almost 20 years before, before Walt Disney was even born. We'll visit a 1910 fishing camp in South Florida and talk with travel writer Herb Hiller. Early promoters of Florida saw Highway A1A as the place to attract visitors. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Visitors to Mount Dora's Lakeside Inn have enjoyed the summer breeze while sitting in rocking chairs on the inn's 200-foot-long veranda, or at least what feels like a summer breeze to northern tourists escaping snow. Lakeside Inn, originally called the Alexander House, was built in 1883 by Civil War veteran James Alexander and his partners John Donnelly and John McDonald. By 1887, a railroad depot was built next to the inn, bringing tourists from the north almost to the inn's front door. Jim Gunderson became owner of Lakeside Inn several years ago. Originally, when guests were, were, would be coming to the inn, they would arrive by, by lake steamer. Um, so that the typical way would be for northerners to come down would be to, to um, either by train or by ship into Jacksonville, at least as far as Jacksonville, and then lake steamer. Um, um, up the, uh, or down, the St. John's River, um, and then eventually making their way through the chain of lakes, um, through the Dora Canal and here into, uh, into Lake Dora. Uh, the trip from New York would take approximately a week. Um, and so, um, so they were definitely a hardy group of, of uh, tourists back in, back in the day. Um, and so train travel certainly made it, um, certainly shortened that, that experience by, you know, by several days. In 1893, Alexander, Donnelly, and McDonald sold the Alexander House to Emma Boone, who changed the name of the inn to the Lake House. In 1903, Emma Boone married George Thayer, and together they greatly expanded the facility into Lakeside Inn. Jim Gunderson. They expanded this building itself, uh, which is the main lobby of the main inn. Um, so essentially sort of doubling its size in a, in a, in a way. 
then they also um, during that same era added what we, what we call the the and what still is they did and we still do called the gatehouse um, and um, another small building with um, um, a number of guest rooms that were a little bit larger um, and uh, featured more of a living room that sort of thing I guess we would call it a suite today um, and then eventually added what what we call here the the sunset cottage um, and that that again featured some additional guest rooms and such so so things were it was um, really going into the late 1800s and early 1900s um, the inn was uh, for all intents and purposes booming um, it was of course only opened in the in the winter months um, typically sort of just before the Christmas period and sort of middish April something of that of that nature um, but again it was it was indeed booming um, the um, there was a period of time in there for a number of years where the whole uh, where the New York Chautauqua uh, had set up a winter uh, camp as it were or, uh, the winter experience down in in uh, in the Mount Dora area um, and that brought in in the month of March it brought in in literally thousands and thousands of guests that would come down for for a couple of weeks of, um, of just education and, and, um, and knowledge building and sharing and lectures and things of that sort so um, so things were things were hopping here in, in in this part of Florida tourism wise as Henry Flagler extended his railway south down the east coast of Florida he built luxury hotels along the way Henry plant did the same on Florida's west coast through her writing, Harriet Beecher Stowe and others encouraged northern tourists to come to Florida. At the start of Florida's tourism industry in the late 1800s and early 1900s, many hotels and inns were built around the state, but Lakeside Inn is one of only a few survivors from this era. Uh, the inn did not stay the only and remain the only hotel. Eventually, additional hotels were built in, in Mount Dora. At, to at one point there was there were a total of four and in, in hotels small hotels started popping up all around the lakes um, here in central Florida uh, so the town next to us Eustace had I think three hotels uh, Leesburg had a number and and so a number of hotels resorts and such were uh, as I say the, the tourism um, right up through the late 1800s early 1900s up up until the 20s really was 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 uh, was booming in this area and typically it was of that era it was people came for relaxation uh, certainly for the warmer weather uh, citrus um, as well as um, fishing and hunting and 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 bird watching was a was a was a huge uh, popular event back in back in the day um, and so um, people could come and and on their personal list as it were in a course of a in the course of a week be able to identify up to up to 200 different bird species uh, here in this area um, so for those that were great fans of Audubon and and such I mean this became uh, this became kind of a, a, a wonderful place to, to come and and be for um, back in the day people would not come obviously for a weekend I mean they would they, for the, the length of journey was was long so they would they would be here for anywhere from a month two months maybe for the entire season um, so, so things were things were sort of moving at the same time that the community was growing. Uh, there were a lot of a uh, lot more families moving into town and, and um, growth, uh, as it were, around this whole around this whole area. I mean, the Central Florida area was was um, um, 
during that period, uh, following the Civil War, and, and even during the Civil War, I mean, there was uh, obviously agriculture was a, was a big, big deal, um, citrus, uh, cattle, horse raising. Uh, so it um, so there was indeed some resource here. There was money. I mean, there were there were there was a reason to come here. The gently rolling hills and the lakes and trees of Mount Dora reminded northern visitors of New England, but without the harsh winter weather. Today, Lakeside Inn is the anchor of Mount Dora's charming downtown historic district, which has many buildings from the early 20th century. The Edgerton family owned Lakeside Inn from 1924 to 1980. The inn continued to thrive even as some nearby competitors went out of business, burned down, or were torn down to make room for new development. As Jim Gunderson explains, President Calvin Coolidge was among the notable figures who enjoyed extended stays at Lakeside Inn during this period. Certainly during the, um, as the, the coasts of Florida started to open up um, a little bit more following the, the, um, the roaring 20s, as it were, um, it, um, it pulled a lot of tourism away from this area, but the inn continued to do well because people still had a, 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 a love of Mount Dora um, back in those days. Uh, and you mentioned exactly uh, President Calvin Coolidge following his, his um, uh, leaving office. Um, uh, President and, and, and First Lady Grace Coolidge came and stayed um, for a month here at the inn um, and, um, uh, and, and just really just relaxed. I mean, the, the, the ordeal of the presidency and such was, um, was that uh, it allowed him then to just simply sit back in a rocking chair on the veranda, as people do today, um, and uh, and just sort of enjoy warm weather and 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 um, perhaps meditate of, of thought of just you know of, of life, and so it, this was a very very good place for him to to be, and he wrote very fondly of it in his in his uh, um, memories and, and memoirs and diaries and things of that sort. So it um, um, so yeah, so the, the inn was the inn was doing um, was doing quite quite well. Um, the depression came, um, the Great Depression certainly, and um, uh, for a lot of hotels, that that signaled even even further disaster. Um, and as you mentioned, eventually uh, a lot of these old structures were old old, old wooden structures and such. So sure, fires, uh, termites, uh, neglect, uh, um, the economy, a lot of things. Eventually, one by one, they all um, went away. Uh, they were redeveloped. A lot of them obviously were in very uh, good lo- locations on the lakes, um, you know, um, uh, in central parts of town, things of that nature. They're, so the real estate became increasingly valuable, um, and so it, um, so one by one they went away. And uh, this is the last one. This is the last remaining um, hotel, grand hotel, uh, built in the Victorian era, era here in in um, the Central Florida Lakes region of Florida. Um, and so we are working at trying to restore and, and, and bring this, um, you know, this uh, um, wonderful uh, historic property back, um, back to life. Photographs of Lakeside Inn through the decades are on the lobby walls. Today, the inn looks much as it did in the early 20th century. Of course, maintaining an historic property is an ongoing effort that is never completely finished. Most days, Jim's wife, Alexandra, can be found working in the gardens around the property while her husband oversees various renovations. 
Both of the Gundersons are dedicated to restoring and maintaining the historic Lakeside Inn. People that understand the, the historic significance of this property, I think, have a great appreciation and, and uh, for the inn and for what it is that we're doing, and and um, and so we're very excited about um, about it. There is no question. This is indeed a Florida landmark. This is the last one. This is a. This is this. If when this goes away, the the memories of of tourism, which was booming in the late 1800s and early 1900s here in Central Florida, will go away. This is many many years before Disney. As I said, this hotel had been operating for solidly operating for almost 20 years before before Walt Disney was even born. Um, so it. Um, so there is some significant and wonderful history that is enjoyed by everybody that checks in still today. Um, the same sorts of things that, that were important then are still important today. Uh, just the relaxation. Mount Dora is just this wonderful little community where people can stroll from the grounds of the inn to, to see a number of um, terrific little shops and visit shops and, 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 and restaurants and cafes and and things of that nature and just honestly and there are plenty of benches and and parks and whatnot so it's just a great little place just to stroll and and sometimes just to sit down and, and relax for 15 minutes and and let the world pass by um and um the the inn was wonderfully strategically built back in the back in the day and it faces the the grand veranda um here of the of the main lakeside building um which we have we have about a 200 foot veranda and it all and it faces directly west so we have these we do enjoy these um beautiful sunsets every evening and um um the big um moss filled oaks and and such really cast an amazing um, um display of 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 shadows and and colors and things every afternoon so it's a beautiful place. It's it's really it's as beautiful as it was back in 1883, and it is today. The 130-year-old Lakeside Inn is located in Mount Dora, and yes, the town is 184 feet above sea level, technically qualifying it as a mount. To celebrate their anniversary, Lakeside Inn is offering listeners to Florida Frontiers a 10% discount on their stay. Just mention Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, when you make your reservation. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, explore our resources at the Library of Florida History, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, where you can get our daily posting, Today in Florida History. 
fishing all of the time, baby going fishing too. Let your life, your sweet wife, catch more fish than you. Many fish bites if you got good bait. Here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing, and my baby going fishing too. I went on down to my favorite fishing hole, baby, grabbed me a pole in line. Pulled my pole on and caught a nine-pound catfish. Now you know I brought him home for supper time. Proving any fish bites if you got good bait. Here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing, and my baby going fishing too. We were just visiting Lakeside Inn, which was a luxury hotel in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In 1910, visitors to Florida could have a much more rural, rustic experience at a South Florida fish camp. Janie Gould explains. A tile manufacturer from Chicago built a fish camp and lodge on the South Fork of the St. Lucie River in Stewart in 1910. His little colony included his own home and a caretaker's cottage. It was all on a dirt road. The road has never been paved, but now it has a name, Siesta Way off Palm City Road. Joanne Rollin owns the original settler's house now. The original caretaker's cottage is next door. And then the little house behind that was a lodge where the men would sit probably and have their cigars and drink their port and talk about their fishing and hunting expeditions. Tell their fish stories. Exactly. You were showing me a drawing of the original house that had barrel tile, and I guess that's because he was in that business, making tile. Yes, and that tile roof, as far as I know, lasted a long time because the roof was replaced in 2003. Not until then. Exactly, unless he put another tile roof on it, but it was a barrel tile roof. Was this one of the first fish camps in the area? It probably was. Have you been able to find anything in newspapers or books or anything like that, articles about Mr. Brown? I've tried to find information about him, but it's really hard having such a common name like that. Sandy Thurlow has found some information about him. That's the information that I know. He was married to a woman named Mary. Mary Brown. Yes, Mary Brown. (laughs) How common is that? Another name to Google. Joanne Rollin, a church musician at Palm City Presbyterian and a piano instructor, transformed the Browns' home into a Key West-style cottage. She painted it lavender to match the lavender clematis blooming outdoors. The interior has an eclectic mix of art and antiques and a collection of miniature pianos, many of them gifts from her students. She bought the house in 2004, just a few months before two hurricanes struck. There was no damage, no actual damage done to the house. Why do you think that was? Because it's made of Dade County pine. It's built to last. My son tries to hang a picture on the wall, and it's almost like hammering into concrete. Everything virtually is made of Dade County pine. The walls, the floors. And the outside siding. Inside the house is a post that was used for the original house. They used palm tree trunks to build the house with from uh, cabbage palms. When the house, as you see it now, was built, they left one of the palm supports in the mudroom so that you could remember how the house was originally built. What do you think it would have been like living here in 1910? I think it would be just absolutely glorious. I have a few pictures. There was this huge expanse of land going to the river. The palm trees rustle 
it's just a glorious place to live, even now, but then it must have been fantastic. But I don't think they used it very much. I think the caretaker was here, but Mr. Brown didn't come down here very much. Probably only in January, February, and March. During the season. What do you think the Browns, Mr. A.W. and Mary Brown, what do you think they would think if they came back and saw this area today? Oh, they would probably be shocked. I would love to see the reaction when they see the kitchen. I'm sure there was no electricity. And there were no bathrooms. Just recently, my neighbor who owns the little house behind it... The original caretaker's house. Right. Found remnants of an outhouse. So the outhouse was just allowed to crumble. It hasn't been taken down. It's all covered with overgrowth. It'd be great if she found a door with the crescent moon on it. (laughs) Wouldn't it, though? Besides fishing and hunting, the early settlers apparently grew pineapples there. I planted some pineapple plants myself, and they do very well. Are they sweet pineapples? I mean, real edible? They're excellent. That was Joanne Rollin of Stewart. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Urban sprawl is threatening many parts of Florida, but travel writer Herb Hiller says that heritage tourism can help to rein in unrestrained growth. Bill Dudley has more. I was born in a taxi cab on the 59th Street Bridge in Manhattan, and my mother was embarrassed. Travel commentator and heritage tourism advocate Herb Hiller. Fortunately, in the cab with her was my Aunt Sarah, who was a peasant woman from Poland and had birthed many calves and piglets and wasn't daunted by the exigency. Hiller made his first trip to Florida, visiting Miami with his parents in 1938. It still had its flamboyance, its flair. The Deco hotels were brand new. And to a kid, of course, it was heavenly. There were pink sidewalks on Lincoln Road, and it rained every afternoon. And 15 minutes after the rain, the sidewalks were dry again. In the late 50s, after serving in the Coast Guard, Hiller relocated to Florida. Since then, he's had a long and varied career as travel industry executive, tourism analyst, even vice president of a steamship line. As a writer and promoter of heritage tourism, he's known for a series of books, including his Guide to the Small and Historic Lodgings of Florida. For his new book, Highway A1A, Florida at the Edge, Hiller looked at the 13 Atlantic Coast counties. When I finished researching this, it was very clear to me that the 13 East Coast counties could very well be the 13 American colonies. 
that were very unwilling to give up their independence and were fairly reluctant to have anything to do with each other. Well, that's not quite the case here. Yet, it's very clear that these 13 counties are 13 extraordinarily different stories. He says the history of the road that connects them, Highway A1A, reflects the relationship between Florida's tourism and development. Early promoters of Florida saw Highway A1A as the place to attract visitors. They thought if they could only get people onto A1A, this coast road that had healthful airs and beautiful vistas. And if you look at some of the old promotional material, it it spoke in the most purple language. And they only knew if we could only get people onto this road, they would see it and they would right away want to buy land. And that was the objective of it. And that is the critical relationship between tourism and some of the really woeful problems we've suffered with to our time. Now that we have seen development rule, we've simply had to say, well, that can't do it anymore. We need an alternative. The alternative is what Hiller sees as a new movement back to the cities, to so-called year-round residential downtowns. He cites examples of this trend from Miami, where over 60,000 residential units are completed or proposed, to Tampa, St. Petersburg, Jacksonville, and smaller cities such as Fort Pierce, which has transformed itself from a decaying ghost town to a vibrant, progressive urban center in a single decade. Fort Pierce Development Director Ramon Trias says the turnaround began in January 1995. I had a chance to work with the community on a downtown charrette, a very intense uh, design workshop. And much to my surprise, there was a, a great interest in the community to turn the town around. And a very visionary plan was developed at the time. And the uh, next thing you know, it began to be implemented. And uh, 10 years later, you can see the, the results. This did not happen by chance. It did not happen because... All of a sudden, the market changed radically or because the people changed in four peers or anything like that. What changed was the idea and what changed was the vision about what the community could be. What Trias and his colleagues share is a vision of a Florida defined by its culture and heritage rather than just more sprawl. Florida can grow any day. People want to move here all the time. The real trick is to make sure that the development that we do respects the history and builds upon it and is of a quality that doesn't destroy the lifestyle of our community. And that, that in, a, in a nutshell, is the challenge that everybody has all over Florida. And the older cities, like Fort Pierce, have a much better chance of achieving that. For all the reasons we so well know, incentives through community redevelopment areas, the horrific commutes so many people face today, the reduction in crime, the advocacy of the new urbanists. We are finally seeing people building downtown and people willing to live downtown. The upshot of it all is it's forming urban culture, which we've never had before. Travel writer Herb Hiller. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org 
and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to enjoy our daily posts today in Florida history. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.